Well, good morning, and I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts 9, verse 32. We're going to dive right in because we have a very lengthy, uh, 78 verses uh, passage and a very challenging passage to cover today as we are continuing our journey uh, through this book of Acts as we are learning how God has sent us as his people into the world uh, to share his good news. Now, I have taken my title uh, this morning from a chapter in one of my books because I think this uh, title captures so well what we're studying today in Acts, Grace for Every Race. But that title immediately raises a question for us. If grace is for every race, if grace is for every person regardless of their ethnicity, their people group, their background, their ancestry, then why has the church so often been a place of racism. We are living, and I don't need to tell you this, you already know, we're living in a country right now that is torn in many ways by racial division, racial strife. Uh, Many people are hurting, many people are grieving over very many things. And in this context, we need to be honest and we need to admit that that Christians have often failed, Christians have often sinned uh, in this area. And we are a church here at Southwinds where we want to be different. And I think in many ways we have. But I also know that we must always be on the journey of continuing to grow more and more and more like Jesus. I know that we must always be desiring in in ever greater ways to show the world a picture of God's coming kingdom, a, a picture that will include people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every color, the beautiful diversity of God's kingdom that is in the gospel. We believe here at Southwinds that the only ultimate hope for racial division, just like every other human problem, is the gospel. Social pressure, political changes, while necessary many times, cannot ultimately deal with racism because racism is ultimately a sin problem. God has to change hearts. And I think what that means in part for us today is while we study this, we each, all of us, need to be praying that that God will teach us and God will change us where we need to to be changed, where we need to become a, a, a different, different people. So if you find yourself in any way feeling kind of defensive right now, or maybe you've already thought, oh, this is going to be a good message because it doesn't really apply to me. You know, you want to kind of rejoice in what some other people need to hear. Then maybe you should ask God uh, to humble your heart, kind of still your, your spirit. Just ask God to help you hear what the Holy Spirit says to you, because we all need to hear what this story tells us. And it's a long story, and it's long mainly because you're going to see it's repeated three times. This is actually done for emphasis, and that tells us it's a a very important text in the flow of this story of Acts. And what's happening here, really, uh, over the whole book is we are continuing to see Acts 1-8 unfold. And you'll remember this verse, the theme verse of the whole book, our Our mission is to be witnesses. We start in Jerusalem, and we saw that the gospel came to Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, and God poured out his spirit, and the church is born. And a few chapters later, the gospel is now being taken to the Samaritans, and that happens. That's a a barrier that falls. And then today we're coming to the conversion of Cornelius, a, a Gentile. And so our text today is opening up for us God's plan of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And God is about to draw his people more fully into his mission. And as we meet this man named Cornelius, and as we read about his conversion, you need to keep in mind, we're going to be reading about Peter's conversion too. Now, Peter has already been converted in the ultimate sense. He believes in Jesus. He's been saved. But Peter still needs a full conversion to the full mission of Jesus. And maybe some of us do too. Now, Peter was a man like most of the Jewish believers in his day who had some real problems with Gentiles. It came out of their history. It came out of their experience. There there was real animosity in his heart toward people who didn't look like him and think like him and believe like him. 
And so as we begin this story, Peter doesn't get yet that the gospel is for everyone. He doesn't get it, even though that truth of God's mission to reach the entire world is all throughout the Old Testament. And so God is going to have to overcome Peter's prejudice. But we're going to see in the New Testament that discrimination and prejudice are sins that come from very, very deep parts of our sinful hearts. And they're not always rooted out very easily. And we're going to see in the letter to the Galatians that Peter himself falls back into this. And and I just want to say this reminds us, and I hope you'll take from that, that we ourselves need to keep on repenting and we need to keep on confessing and we need to keep on asking God for grace in this area that we ourselves would love God's plan for the nations, for the entire world. And this plan that God has can be stated like this. God extends his saving grace to anyone, whatever their people group, anyone who cries out to Jesus for salvation. Now, I know in a room like this, there's not a person who would disagree with that. But the living out of that truth, of that reality, can be difficult for some of us sometimes because of some deeply embedded prejudices that still can lurk down, 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 deep inside even redeemed hearts. I read a story this week that I'd heard before. It was reminded of it. It comes from the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi, and he told about a time when he was a student in England, and he had been reading the Gospels. He was seriously considering becoming a Christian because he was feeling like Jesus' teachings could overcome the caste system that was dividing his people in India. And so one Sunday, he decided he was going to attend a church and, and ask the minister there for enlightenment and explanation about salvation and other doctrines. But when he tried to enter the sanctuary, the church's ushers stopped him and refused to give him a seat, and they told him that he ought to go elsewhere to worship with his own people. Well, Gandhi left, and he never came back. And he was to say later, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. Now, the sad fact is that stories like that have also taken place in many churches in our country. And I want to point out to a congregation of Californian Christians, it doesn't just happen. It hasn't just happened in the South. If you know anything about history, it has happened here It has happened where we live. And we need to be careful that we don't point again away from ourselves and think that other people have the problem that we we, we don't have it. And there may be some of us in this room right now where something like this has even happened to you. It may be that some of us even know some members of churches or maybe even know some pastors who, who sometimes express this kind of attitude towards certain people groups. As we dive into this story, we need to be very clear that the root of racism is not sociological and it is not psychological. It is theological. The inclination to discriminate and have prejudice is a result of humanity's sinful, fallen nature. And we do it for all kinds of reasons. Not only ancestry, ethnicity, we do it for reasons of other people's age, or maybe their appearance, or maybe about affluence, or even about achievements. And this story is just going to hammer home, and we need to see that racism in its many forms is evil, and wherever we find it in our lives, we must repent of it, and we must keep repenting of it, because the tendency to discriminate is so deeply ingrained in many of our hearts that we don't even realize it. I was reminded this last week that We studied the book of Jonah last year, and it was very interesting to think about that in light of this passage. You remember that Jonah didn't want to go uh, to Nineveh and tell them God's message, and the reason was he hated the Ninevites. He despised the Assyrian people that lived there. And it's actually fascinating that there are many common threads between Jonah and this reluctant apostle Peter. I don't know if anybody remembers from reading the Gospels what Peter's full name is. Um, If you don't, his full name is Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. So it's like he has a similar name to the prophet Jonah. 
And God commissioned both Jonah and Simon Bar-Jonah to carry his message to people they saw as their enemies. And both of those people protested. Both of these people eventually withdrew their protest. Jonah, after spending three days in the belly of a fish, that'll change your mind, right? And Peter, after he received a vision that had to be repeated three times. So this connection of the three. And then after obeying and then after preaching God's message, both men witnessed God granting repentance to these outsiders. Now, this made Jonah angry, and God had to correct him. Peter actually uh, rejoiced, but the other Christians who were to hear about what God had done, they did not rejoice, and God corrects them too. And so we see in these stories, Old Testament, New Testament, that Jonah and Simon Bar-Jonah are both being sent to display God's heart for the nations. Now, I'm saying all this to just set this up, and we need to know that what we're seeing in our very lengthy text today is utterly crucial to the mission that God has given to us as his people in the 21st century. And to help us get what's going on here, I want you to see this morning four things that Jesus does. We'll start with this. Write this down in your message notes. Sometimes Jesus needs to stretch his own people. I want to begin in Acts 9.32 where Luke writes, As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic, who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So Luke is kind of bringing Peter back into the flow of this narrative, establishing his role in the mission of God. And he, he highlights this ministry that Peter was having. And he, he particularly points out a miracle where Peter heals, through the power of Jesus, this man named Aeneas. This miracle is intended to highlight Jesus' power over disease. So Peter is traveling. Uh, He's visiting believers in Lydda. This is a a community about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And he meets this man, Aeneas, paralyzed for eight years. And Peter just speaks to him. And he literally says to this man, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Now, I was thinking some of you may need this verse to quote to your teenager. (laughs) So I've given you a verse now, all right? You're welcome. And... uh, Aeneas immediately gets up and he walks. It's the power of Jesus over disease. Then Luke tells us about another miracle. This miracle shows us Jesus' power over death. And this is displayed in the story of a woman who has a very unfortunate name. Her name is Dorcas. Um, And in verse 36, it says, In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha. That's the Aramaic name, which when translated into Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. And about that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. It's about 10 miles away. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Now, it's kind of interesting, I think, that Tabitha's name actually means gazelle, and in Greek, Dorcas means gazelle. That makes no sense to us, uh, but that's really what it means. And she was this disciple, and she was a wonderful person. She was always doing good, always helping the poor. And so when she dies, no one wants to lose her. And so the disciples, they send for the apostle Peter. They're hoping that He can raise her up. They don't even bury her. They just put her in a room, her body in a room. They're just hoping and praying for this miracle. And they were not disappointed because God uses Peter to display Jesus' power over death. It says Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. So here's this woman, such a special person. She has this heart 
for widows, and her ministry uh, for them was making them clothes. And it, it had so touched them that they stood around Peter. They wanted him to know who she was. They were showing him all these robes that she had made, the, the Dorcas collection. I don't know, the <laughs> gazelle garments or the Tabitha tunics, something like that. And, and Peter sends him out, and he prays, and, and then he calls Dorcas by her Aramaic name, Tabitha, and he says, get up. What you need to know that's happening here is he is echoing what Jesus, his master, has done earlier. We see it in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus went and he visited this man, Jairus, whose daughter had died. In Mark 5.41, you, you'll see it in your Bibles. Jesus speaks in Aramaic and says, Talitha kum. Well, here Peter in the power of Jesus, just one letter gets changed in, in our text, is Tabitha Kum. He's just walking in the footsteps of Jesus, displaying the mercy of Jesus, the coming kingdom of Jesus. Tabitha, get up, and that's what she does. And this also reminds us, I think, of what Jesus said in that passage in Mark 5 when he was there at Jairus' home, and all the mourners around were saying, what are you doing here? The child has died. And Jesus says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And this is basically Jesus' way of saying, death for the Christian is like going to sleep. You're going to get up. He's going to call your name. And you're going to wake up. And it's such a beautiful picture. See, any time... Anyone that we know, that we love, who is in Christ, anytime they die, when they die, Jesus just says their name. And they get up. They wake up. Maybe you can think of it like this. Every night when you lay down and go to sleep, it's resurrection practice. You're just rehearsing. And you wake up in the morning and this all means for the Christian, we don't fear death because we know when we die, Jesus will call our name. And when he calls your name, you wake up. You wake up. Verse 42, this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Now, I want to give you real quickly four reasons why Luke includes these two miracles here, uh, and they are these. First, they, they reinforce uh, the authenticity of Peter's apostleship. They just remind us of who he is and, and that Peter is running in the footsteps of Jesus. Second, they demonstrate the power of Jesus, and they remind us that Peter's mission and our mission is propelled by the resurrection power of Jesus. Third, they provide signs of Jesus' coming kingdom. You see, in the coming kingdom of Jesus, there will be no sick people. There will be no dead people. And this is a sign of final salvation in Jesus. This is what miracles do. Miracles are not about showing off. Miracles are signs pointing to greater truth and reality. And, and this is showing us, these miracles are showing us the restoration of nature, of what it will be like when the king comes. When he comes to stay forever. No more sickness. No more death. And then finally, both miracles lead to salvation. See, people turn to Jesus for salvation because the miracles are not ends in themselves. They are appointing to greater truth. And that truth is that Jesus is the Lord and salvation is only found in him. Now, both of these miracles are also in the narrative that Luke gives us. They're setting the stage for the next miracle because Luke, having shown us Christ's power over disease and over death, he's now going to show us Christ's power over discrimination. Luke concludes this chapter by noting something, and it's actually where I get my point, this first point. He, he notes that Peter is in Joppa. And he's staying with this guy, and this guy's name is Simon, and this guy Simon has a job. He is a tanner. And this is very significant. Luke just kind of lays it out there, but people in this day would have known uh, clearly God is doing something here because tanners were people who, whose livelihood was about working with dead animals. They, you know, they cleaned up dead animals so they could turn their skins into leather. This meant, and Simon's a Jewish man, that as a Jewish person, 
they were perpetually ceremonially unclean. They were always handling dead animals, and other Jewish people wouldn't have wanted to be around him and, and, and fellowship with him. And so Peter is staying with him, and what must be going on is that God is stretching Peter, and he's, he's working in his heart. He's expanding that heart. He's, he's breaking down some of these old walls so that Peter can see the truth of what God is doing in the world. Here's the second thing Jesus does. Sometimes Jesus needs to convert his own people. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So we meet Cornelius, and we're told uh, that he lives in Caesarea. This is a, a city on the coast. It's a military city. It's the capital of the Roman occupation of Israel. It's about 31 miles north of Joppa. And this is a city that Jewish people hate because it represents the occupying army. And Cornelius is a captain of that occupying Roman army. He's a centurion. This means that he commanded about 100 Roman soldiers posted there in Caesarea. We're also told from history that he was a man who would have been paid about five times as much as an ordinary soldier. So that means he's a wealthy man as well as an influential man. And that would have given Jewish people even more reasons to resent him. Think of it. The gospel goes first to this guy, this man, representing an occupying force, wealthy, oppressor. This is where the gospel goes. So this is the context. It's in this intensely Gentile place with this intensely Gentile man that Peter has to come to terms with his own prejudices. See, the gospel is about to break through and break apart an anti-gospel tradition that's lurking in the apostle's heart. I just want to ask you just to kind of bring this up to our experience. And you're going to have to think hard, some of you, about this. But where in the world would be the most despised location for you? I mean, what nation might that be? Or what city might be represented by that? Or maybe even what part of town, you know, you could just do without it. You never want to go there. And then ask yourself, why do you feel this way? And then ask yourself, what would it be like to travel to that place? Imagine doing what Peter's doing. He's going there. And then when you get there, you're working to befriend the people who you meet there, the people you don't like. You're offering those people the gospel. That's... Peter's assignment. Now, Luke wants us to see the kind of man Cornelius was. You notice he says that Cornelius was God-fearing. Anytime you see this phrase, a God-fearer, in the New Testament, it's a term that was applied to Gentiles. And these are Gentiles who believed in the one God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jewish people, and also were uh, seeking to obey the Ten Commandments. They did those things, but they did not want uh, to be circumcised. Can you blame them? (laughs) They also did not want to follow the Old Testament uh, kosher dietary restrictions. And and so the Jewish people, they they tended to respect uh, these God-fears, but they kept them at arm's length because they weren't fully uh, in the fold. They hadn't converted fully. And and Luke notes that this, this man, Cornelius, he was noted for... His generosity, he gave alms to people all the time. He was noted for his prayer. So we have this picture of this man who's very moral, very religious. He's very spiritual. He's a guy you'd like to live next door to. He'd be a good neighbor. You know, everybody would say he's a good man. But he doesn't know Jesus. And God is going to appear to Cornelius through this angel. And God is not going to say to Cornelius, you're a good man. God is going to say, in essence, to Cornelius, you need to be born again. You need to be converted. And this just reminds us of something that we tend to forget sometimes, that not only irreligious people need to be converted, but so do religious people. Moral people and hedonistic people. Doesn't matter. Everybody needs the gospel. And that's what Cornelius needs. He needs someone to explain the gospel to him. That's why in chapter 10, we get these two corresponding visions. Uh, They are all about getting the gospel to Cornelius. We we start 
in verse 3 with Cornelius' vision. It says, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So he sends them on this journey, 31 miles south, uh, to get Peter. Why did he do this? Well, in Acts 11, verses 13 and 14, Peter is recounting this story, and he adds something important that we don't see here. Cornelius wasn't saved because of the vision. The vision only led him to Peter, who gave him the gospel, and the gospel saved him. The vision alone wasn't sufficient. The angel told Cornelius that, that, that Peter is going to bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So that's why he needs Peter, because Cornelius needs the gospel. This reminds us of Acts 4.12, where we read, There is no other name given under heaven to men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. God, in his grace is working in Cornelius' life. And I'm just wondering today if that might be what is happening for some of you. God's working in your life. You're not a Christ follower, but he's doing something, and you're not even sure you get what it is he is up to. It may not be this dramatic, this grand vision, but, but you find that you are seeking him. And I just want to ask you to consider this question. Why are you seeking him? The author C.S. Lewis uh, once said that agnostics talk cheerfully about man's search for God. He says they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. See, the reality ultimately is that God is seeking you. And if there is any sense that you have in your life where as a non-Christian, you, you are seeking God and you want to know about him, it is because God is already seeking you. God has already come after you, and he is drawing you to himself. He does this in so many different ways. Sometimes, sometimes he draws people through just this deep spiritual hunger, kind of an ache where they just want to know. And sometimes, sometimes he raises questions in people's minds. People get curious about Jesus or, or they have spiritual questions, maybe about life after death, or maybe about why different people believe different things and follow different codes. But if you find that you are hungering to know more about Jesus, you need to be reminded, you need to know that God is seeking you. And I just want to encourage you, keep seeking him and keep asking those questions. Sometimes what happened is Cornelius still happens. You know, God can do whatever he wants. And sometimes God still gives visions. I recently heard about a missionary working in a very dangerous part of Afghanistan. He had worked with local people to start an underground church, and local uh, non-believers were trying to discover this church's location. They knew that it was there, and they wanted to find out where the people were gathering so they could persecute the believers, but they could never find it. And then late one night, this missionary is inside the location of this secret church. He hears a knock on the door, and he cautiously opens the door, and he sees there a tribesman who's standing there. This man explains to the missionary that he had walked for days to find the missionary. He said, I had a vision three days ago that there would be a man standing at this address who would tell me how to get to heaven. Are you that man? The missionary said, I am. <laughs> and he shared the gospel with him. I also read about a man working to reach Muslims in Washington, D.C., and he was approached by a Muslim man, and this Muslim man asked him, who is I am? I keep seeing I am in my dreams. And 
this missionary began to explain, and he, he gave him a Bible, and he encouraged him to read the Gospel of John, and it wasn't long until he led this man to faith in Jesus. And at that point, this formerly Muslim man said, many of the I am statements that I read in John, I heard first in my dreams. It is a wonderful thing that God in his grace is seeking people. And it is a wonderful thing that you and I, in many cases, we can be a Peter to a Cornelius. They just want to know, how how do you put this all together? Can you help me understand? And and we will have the opportunity to share with them. And that's what Peter's going to do. But before he can do that, he has to be himself converted in a missional sense. And that's the next vision, beginning in verse 9. Luke writes, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. It's like stuff that Peter would not normally eat as an observant Jew. It's against the law. But then in verse 13, it says, Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And all the men said, Amen. What a great verse. Like, I love this church. Um, All the vegetarians and vegans, sorry, I I don't have a verse for you. Um, I don't know, get up, pick some grass and eat or whatever. And no disrespect to vegans, vegetarians. I think you're very healthy people. Uh, If you feel the need to write an email about this, Uh, All my emails are received at jmills at (laughs) southwinds.org. Now, Peter doesn't like this command. In verse 14, it says, Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. Now, I just want to stop right there and ask you, when Jesus says to do something, anybody think it's a really good idea to say, Surely not? (laughs) Now I want to ask you, are you doing that? What has God been telling you to do? And you know that he's told you to do it. And you've been saying, surely not. God may be telling someone that you need to commit to being a part of a church family. Oh, surely not, Lord. You know how those people are. God may have been telling Some of us in this room, it's time for you to begin giving generously of your resources that I have blessed you with. Oh, surely, surely not that, Lord. I mean, what might it be in your life? God has been telling you to do it, and you're pushing back like Peter. I mean, Peter's kind of an interesting guy. Peter has this track record of arguing with Jesus. You can see it several times in the gospel. Well, here he starts getting upset He says, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Uh, This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Three times. God wants it made so clear. See, Peter's about to learn that this vision is not about food, but it's about people. And it's kind of like this. Just like he's being told that he can now eat anything, the gospel is now for everyone. Everyone is worthy of our love. Everyone is worthy of our hospitality. Everyone is worthy of our our witness. That God is breaking down this Jewish-Gentile wall, and the food law was a big part of that. How is God calling you to live out this kind of vision? I know many of you already are. Many of you are already seeking to build relationships with people who come from different backgrounds, people from different faiths, people of Muslim faith or people of Hindu faith or even people of no faith at all. That's what God wants us to do still today. Now, in verses 17 through 29, what we're going to see is is Peter and Cornelius, they're applying the visions that they have received. Verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. 
they called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Why did God tell him not to hesitate? Because he was going to hesitate. Verse 21, Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Now, I just love this next verse, verse 23. This is an epic moment for Peter. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. You need to understand this had never before happened in Peter's life. And he doesn't just invite them into the house. It says the next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. That phrase, the next day, implies that he had them spend the night. Now, Cornelius is going to apply the vision. Verse 24 The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. That's, of course, Peter. Cornelius was expecting them, and it called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. So he makes this two-day journey to Caesarea. He takes some brothers. Those are other disciples with him. These are men who are not only going to be his companions, but they're also going to serve as witnesses to what God does. And when this group arrives in Caesarea, we see both Cornelius and Peter displaying very deep humility. Don't miss this. Cornelius is a high-status, high-powered, elite individual. He's a Roman official, and he bows before this low-status Jewish fisherman. And then the Jewish fisherman reminds Cornelius that they are both just men, both just created by God, and there's no need for them to bow to one another, that they are only together because they are submitting to God's word and they are acting in humility with one another. Verse 27, talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Now, I don't want you to miss the tension that is in this moment. Peter is in a room full of Gentiles. I mean, just imagine what this was like and. And I think maybe a way to sort of enter into that is just to ask yourself in your own life, what group do you find yourself really standing off from? You wouldn't want to be around them. You know, for some of us in maybe a little older generation, how do you respond when you encounter a person with tattoos and multiple piercings? Or how do you respond when you're introduced to a same-sex couple or... What happened to me several weeks ago when you are encountering a cross-dresser while you're paying for your groceries? What do you do when you meet someone whose politics are horribly wrong? (laughs) Which being interpreted means they're just different from yours, right? How do you respond if you meet a new Muslim or Hindu family in your neighborhood. And if you've heard all these illustrations, and if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, that's not me, I don't have any problem with any of those things, I just want to ask you, are you sure? Are you sure? So whatever that group is for you, now imagine you're in a crowded room, and you're like the only one not like the rest of everybody. Here you are, and you've been given this opportunity to share the gospel. This is the feeling. It's very, very tense. And, and Peter, you know, verse 29 again, says, So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? And I love that. Peter's admitting he's being honest. I didn't want to do this. 
but the Lord told me to, and so I'm obeying him. And that is always the question, isn't it? When we read the Bible and it rubs up against what we want or don't want to do, who wins? Will we submit to God's word or not? Will we be ruled by God's word or not? And Peter said, I was commanded, so I went. Now, verses 30 to 32, uh, Cornelius replays these events for Peter. He tells uh, the apostle why he sent for them, and, and then he expresses even more humility, uh, expressing eagerness to hear whatever it is Peter has to say. Uh, I mean, what, a, what an incredible invitation to preach the gospel. And I just want to pause right here, and I want to give you three practical ways that we can work to display a love for all of our neighbors, regardless of their ethnicity or their background. Number one, we can show no hesitation in befriending people unlike us. That comes from verse 20. Number two, we can show hospitality toward everyone. We open our homes and we open our lives. That's verse 23. And from verse 26, third, we can show humility before all people, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their income, whatever, because we know that we are all made in the image of God. See, the question, I think, practically for all of us, it boils down to this. Would displaying love in these kind of ways come easily for you? Or do you still need to be converted like Peter? See, if you hesitate at the idea of befriending and associating with people unlike you, or maybe you've never opened your home to those outside your usual circle, is it possible? Will you be honest and humble enough to consider that maybe you share some way in this sort of sin? Are you willing to consider that, to ask God to change your heart? Let's move to the next thing. This is in Acts 10, 34 to 43. Third thing Jesus does. Jesus, it says, always Jesus receives any person who seeks him. So Cornelius has now kind of just thrown this big, fat, spiritual softball to Peter. He's like he's teed it right up, and Peter knocks it out of the park. He just preaches the simple gospel. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Peter just lays it out. Peter denies any kind of partiality on God's part, any kind of preference for any group of people. He affirms the other side of that, that God welcomes people from every nation who fears him in the same way because we're all created in the image of God. And then Peter takes these people through the, the ministry of Jesus, his life, how he lived and healed people and did good things, how he he displayed power over the devil and then his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb and finally his return. And, and then Peter is like, he starts wrapping this up, sort of to speak, by talking about the prophets. He's going to tie this in and tell them how this is all rooted in the Old Testament. But then his sermon gets cut off. It's like he's prepared this message and the Holy Spirit has the audacity to fall. The Holy Spirit just says, that's enough. And he comes on these people. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues 
and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Do those verses sound familiar? They should if you've read Acts 2, if you've read the account of Pentecost, the same things happening to the Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit falls. All these things happening are happening again. This is a Gentile Pentecost, and this is verifying that God has opened the doors to his kingdom. Salvation has come to them as well. The Gentiles, too, are children of Abraham, not through circumcision, but by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, some of the Jewish brothers are still going to struggle with this, but God is making it crystal clear that he welcomes them that this massive gulf between Jew and Gentile has now been bridged. And it's really a fitting thing. I don't know if you remember this, but back when Jesus was with his disciples, this is in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom. You remember that? And, And Peter preaches the gospel at Pentecost when the gospel comes to the Jews. He opens the door to them, the doors of the kingdom. And then Peter goes... Uh, and verifies what was happening with the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. He opens the doors of the kingdom to them, and now he goes to the Gentiles, and he opens that final door. Same spirit falls. They are baptized just like their Jewish brothers and sisters, so they're now brothers and sisters, Jew and Gentile, meeting at the cross. Last truth, just to remind us, always Jesus teaches that his grace is for every race. And I'm repeating this because it can take a while for it to sink in. We do need to be reminded. We see in Acts 11 that there were some people who were upset that God would save some people they didn't really like. Uh, The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter began and he explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. He tells the story, which we have already seen. Now, I'm not going to go through that story again, but I just want you to see Peter got to do what many of you can do. He served as a bridge builder. He became a peacemaker between different groups of people through the gospel because it is the gospel that is the bridge that unites people who are different in every other way. I don't know how many of you uh, may have seen a few years ago that that great theological Clint Eastwood movie uh, called Gran Torino. And if you remember it, uh, in the movie, Clint Eastwood plays this old retired man who lives in Detroit, and he owns a 1972 Grand Torino. And he's a widowed man. He's a very angry man. He's a very racist man. And he is upset that his community that he's lived in all his life has deteriorated, and now all of his neighbors are from other countries. And right next door to him that lives this family that's from the Hmong people group. And he can't stand them, and they can't stand him. And they don't speak the same language, so they can't communicate. And, and you may remember that scene. Some of them get on his lawn one day, and he does the classic old man thing, you know, get off my lawn, only he's got a rifle. And uh, it's just this horrible, horrible tension. But then there's this little teenage girl named Sue, part of the family who's a bridge builder, She understands her people, and she begins to connect with him. She eventually invites Eastwood into their home, and at one point he says, I have more in common with these people than with my people. Maybe you remember in the movie, I won't explain the whole thing, but he ends up dying for his neighbors. Why? How how could he do that? Well, he could do that because there was a bridge builder. 
And that is what some of you will be blessed to do. That's what Peter will do. In chapter 11, he's going to advocate for the Gentiles, speak up for them. He's going to say to his Jewish brothers, we are one. He's going to say to them, we have more in common with believers who don't look like us than we do with unbelievers who look just like us. Now, Peter, he doesn't get it right every day after that. And if you read the book of Galatians, you'll see how he fell back into this sin, just like like we do sometimes. We fall back into sin we've already repented of. I want you to look at what Luke uh, writes in verses 15 to 18 to kind of draw this together. Uh, Peter has told them about his vision and Cornelius' vision, then how he preached. And then he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And I just want to say to you today, maybe you need to hear this, to stand in God's way is not wise and it's not safe. Just ask Jonah. (laughs) Because you see, the train is going down the track. The train has already left the station. God is converting the Gentiles. God is converting the peoples. God is converting every tribe, every tongue. You want to try to stop that? Go ahead. But you're just going to get flattened. And Peter's like, I'm not getting in the way of that train. I want to get on board. And verse 18 says, when they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. God's word for us today through this story is that grace is for every race and that each one of us should ask God to open ourselves up to ourselves to see whatever sin may still lurk in our hearts in this area. Ask him to root that out We need to repent. We need to get cleansed by God. We need to let him change our heart. John Piper preached a message on this passage a number of years ago to his church, and he said this, and I'll close with this. He said, so let us wash our minds and our mouths of all racial slurs and ethnic put-downs, and let us be done with all alienating behaviors. And let's be the good Samaritan for some ethnic outcast. Let's be the Christ for some untouchable leper. And let's be the Peter for some waiting Cornelius. This is God's word to us today. Will you hear it? Will you obey it? Let's bow our heads and we'll pray together. God, our Father, we give you thanks today that you speak to our hearts, and we just ask that you would open us up so that we might hear your Holy Spirit speaking. May we repent, Lord, wherever we have sinned, and we ask, may your kingdom come, and may that kingdom be displayed in us for your glory and for our good. We pray these things, Father, now in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus, and all God's people say.